Hi, I'm Jack Cush. It's the 8th of December 2017 and this is the Room Now Week in Review where we cover all the news from the past week on our website roomnow.com. At the top of the news, talk of gout and urate-lowering therapy drug discontinuation. What gout patients stopping their drugs? Could that possibly ever happen? Of course it does. It's really problematic. We often have no control. The consequences of such discontinuation, however, you might be able to predict, but here are some numbers. Actually, these investigators did a meta-analysis, um, and after paring it down, they came up with five studies that looked at urate-lowering urate therapy being discontinued and looked specifically at short-term and long-term outcomes. Uh, and what they found was that you could actually stop urate-lowering therapy and have good short-term success, especially if the, the serum uric acid level was low. However, they did find over time that there were significant uh, relapse rates when you stop urate-lowering therapy. Often it took as much as a year and sometimes as much as four and a half years for those effects to be seen. This was certainly more prevalent in gout than in nephrolithiasis. In gout, the relapse rates ranged from 36% to 81% in different studies. In patients with nephrolithiasis, it was lower at about 15%. So those are the risks I think that you could uh, reliably um, translate to your patients if they're considering trying to do this uh, under your guidance. Unfortunately, most of these are not being under, under your guidance and are uh, things that just happened. Um, an interesting study happened uh, in the literature where they looked at uh, the transition or the switching of patients taking the innovator infliximab Remicade and switching to a biosimilar uh, infliximab, in this case, Inflectra. This is a study of IBD patients, 133 of whom uh, were studied and followed. Two-thirds had Crohn's disease, one-third had uh, ulcerative colitis, and after 12 months, they really noticed no difference in disease activity, in sed rate and CRP and markers of activity in drug levels. Uh, and so overall, again, it seems like the transition from and the switching from an innovator to the biosimilar could be met with significant success. Uh, of course, there's a lot of other issues uh, behind this, uh, including the finances, etc. So, uh, but nonetheless, good data from a fairly large cohort, 133 IBD patients. A new uh, announcement by the FDA this past week uh, was that they have granted uh, orphan drug status to a new microbiome targeted drug called SER287. This is a syndicate of live bacterial spores that is hypothesized to actually help change the dysbiosis that is seen in patients with ulcerative colitis. Now they're going after a pediatric population here. This is that's the indication here. It's pediatric ulcerative colitis. So there's a small number of people who'll be eligible eligible for this therapy and this study. The question uh, is, will this become a future um, way that we manage our patients. There's a lot of talk about the dysbiosis of the microbiome as a contributory factor. Uh, there's very little, while there's a lot of data showing the association between microbiome changes and disease states, there are thus far no studies that have shown that alteration of the microbiome leads to improved outcome in RA, IBD, lupus, etc. But so this is maybe this may be one of the first areas where where we will will be able to see this because they have at least one targeted therapy that can be used in this regard. I think it's an interesting study. It's one we should watch. Uh, abdominoplasty, tummy tucks, etc. You know, it happens all the time. It happens in 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 people of all ages. 
Uh, an interesting report this week appeared that showed that patients who have connective tissue diseases in fact have a higher risk of many outcomes. Now, they, they generally do pretty well, but the outcomes that they do have problems with are, are those that involve the skin, hematomas, uh, venous thromboembolism, uh, and the need for transfusions. They tend to have longer hospital stays. And so what does this say? Is there something unique about abdominoplasty here? No, I don't think so. What is unique is that undertaking any kind of surgery in patients with connective tissue disease imparts a new risk factor. There could be complications that you wouldn't see in someone who didn't have an autoimmune uh, or connective tissue disease. So again, this is a part and parcel of what you must translate to patients who are considering even minor procedures that they may, might actually have a higher risk of these kind of, I think, minor side effects, but nonetheless could, could be substantial uh, and could cost more in the overall cost of care. A, a very interesting report on coffee consumption being associated with reductions and increases in all kinds of disease states. This is a BMJ article, which I must say I, I found to be quite um, irritating to say the least. And, and what can I say about this? The bottom line is that if you they compared those who were on um, high versus low coffee consumption, any versus none, and those who had an extra cup of coffee, that, that's really going out there on a on, on an on a on the limb, if you ask me, but they did show that those who had three to four cups a day or more compared to those who had little had a reduction in all-cause mortality uh, of 17% and 19% for cardiovascular mortality and 18% uh, lowering of, cardio, of, of cancer risk. Um, but in pregnancy, high coffee consumption was associated with more adverse outcomes, including a 30% increase in low birth weight infants and pregnancy loss about a, and there there was about a 50% increase. So what does this mean when you look at the data and it is actually a, a free read if you want to look at the data uh, on the website it explains it shows you lots of data and my my problem is is this one of these examples where you're you're you're, you're trolling for p values and trying to come up with uh, using large numbers of patients uh, associations which might mean something but could be nothing because you're applying this against a very large uh, cohort, uh, and and that's I, I don't know what this kind of data means. And moreover, what's so magical about coffee that it would have both detrimental and uh, beneficial effects? I can remember back to when coffee consumption was associated with pancreatic cancer, uh, much like um, charbroiled hamburgers were associated. I mean, did anybody stop their coffee or their hamburgers based on this kind of data? They, they had p-values, but were they clinically meaningful? Coffee is a complex of anti-inflammatory compounds, antioxidants. Uh, it's got a number of things that could have metabolic effects. It's, it includes things like, where is this? It depends on the bean that they're looking at. It includes not only caffeine, but chlorogenic acids, uh, diterpenes, di, uh, Cathostol and Kawiol, who knows what this stuff is? It sounds like it's like the um, the the liquid equivalent of a hot dog as far as the the, the contaminants or or the ingredients. But again, it does depend on, on somewhat on the beans that are being used. And uh, there's well, there's a lot of similarities, a lot of differences. And then when you start looking at the data, I, I, it does show a number of cancers: childhood leukemia, lung cancer, and pregnancy loss seem to be higher. Um, things like uh, type 2 diabetes is lower, or um, renal stones and, and gout is lower, liver cancer. I again, the, the amount of benefit here is uh, certainly 
somewhere between 10 and, and maybe 50% um, lower risk of these things. But again, is it meaningful? Does it? I, I don't know. Um, thankfully, um, or maybe I shouldn't be thankful. I'm not a coffee drinker. And I don't think based on this data, I'm about to take it up. But nonetheless, I think it's a provocative study that can be, can be found in the BMJ. Um, an interesting study this week on how to diagnose fibromyalgia. This comes from a, a clinical um, skills uh, journal. And, and they looked at three tests that could be used uh, uh, in, to diagnose fibromyalgia in primary care, especially when considering patients who have chronic pain. So they actually had a cohort of fibromyalgia patients, patients who had no pain and patients who had chronic pain. And while they um, had some significant data for actually it was a number of different things that they looked at. They had three. One was the blood pressure cuff inducing pain. The second was the tenderness over 10 body sites. And the third was a single question. I have persistent deep aching over most of my body on a visual analog scale. They showed that two of these actually had a predictive value compared to the other groups and the control group. One was um, digital pressure over the Achilles tendon. That's four, I think, kilograms per meter squared, enough to blanch your finger your finger over the Achilles tendon. Uh, and the question, I have uh, persistent deep aching pain over most of my body. Those two were uh, reasonably predictive in a primary care setting. Uh, and that's a big advance. I mean, if you could teach those two points um, to your primary care colleagues, I think you will be helping yourself and them quite a bit. I mean, this is, to me, somewhat akin to Paul Emery's MCP squeeze test as a screening test for rheumatoid arthritis. So I think it's an important research and one that you might, might bear further study. Uh, a, a, an interesting study appeared looking at comorbidities in pregnancy and what happened between 2005 and 2014. They showed about a 50% increase in, um, in the number of pregnancies and deliveries during this period. And looking at the deliveries that occurred in hospitals, the actual um, number of comorbidities being seen uh, increased from 66 uh, to 92 per 1,000 uh, uh, deliveries. That's, again, about a 50% increase uh, just looking at one comorbidity. And then they showed that for pregnancies that were associated with multiple comorbidities, thankfully very few, uh, um, but there was an increase over the same time period. In fact, the doubling from four um, to eight per 1,000 hospitalized deliveries. So while the numbers are low, these events are occurring. And I think it is uh, part and parcel of, of what you're getting these days with uh, in all the uh, patients who are, are pregnant. There is more to deal with, uh, and that could be a consequ uh, consequence of many factors. But more importantly, we need, I think, some guidance, especially in our area. We tend to be a comorbidity for pregnancy to have better uh, guidance on this issue. And, and thankfully, the ACR has uh, formulated a guidelines committee to look at recommendations regarding uh, the management of patients who are pregnant and who have rheumatic diseases. That's just starting this year. I think you'll see something uh, as an end product of this probably late next year or early in 2019. Uh, an, an interesting report shows up um, on the website that looks at um, perioperative infections in patients receiving TNF inhibitors. As you know, there's a, a, some confusing evidence about this. And the current recommendation for those of you who are considering having surgery and someone on a TNF inhibitor is that the TNF inhibitor should be suspended for one dosing interval, or if you want one number that fits all for four weeks. 
But there is a lot of data on this, and it's quite confusing. If you look at patients who are on TNF inhibitors versus those not on TNF inhibitors at the time of surgery, there's more perioperative infections. If you look at patients who uh, hold their TNF inhibitor for more than one dosing interval, there's actually less infection. So in this particular report, they looked at patients who were on infliximab and, uh, and the timing of suspension of or continuation of infliximab in the perioperative period for people undergoing hip and knee arthroplasty. This comes from Jeff Curtis and colleagues doing uh, a claims database uh, study. And basically they showed that uh, being on, um, on the TNF inhibitor for within four weeks of surgery was not associated with any higher rate of infection than those patients who had discontinued the, the, the TNF inhibitor, in this case infliximab, at eight to 12 weeks prior to surgery. So this goes along with some recent data that says that most of the drugs that we're told we have to stop by our surgeons and, uh, who really don't have any data on this and haven't studied this very well um, is really poor. Uh, you can continue your DMAR therapy and you probably can continue your TNF inhibitor, although you shouldn't have a TNF inhibitor and then have surgery the next day. Obviously, there should be some small period, but this data says that uh, within four weeks, all the patients on infliximab did just as well as those who had discontinued it before. Uh, the big news this week in the, in, from the FDA was the announcement that the FDA approved uh, ixekizumab, also known as TALTS, for the treatment of psoriatic arthritis. This drug has previously been approved for use in patients who had um, moderate to severe plaque psoriasis, where the data is astounding. It's, you know, it sort of broke uh, through the ceiling of, uh, of the usual results you saw with um, POSSE 75 responses. Now with the IL-17 inhibitors like secukinumab and now ixekizumab, you're seeing remarkable responses with uh, POSSE 90s and POSSE 100s and total clearing of skin. So the skin responses are fabulous with this drug and the other IL-17 inhibitors that have been under study. The question is, how will they do in uh, psoriatic arthritis? In this case, the drug was approved. It was approved uh, based on uh, the results of many different trials, specifically the SPIRIT P1 and the SPIRIT P2 trial uh, that were reported uh, just recently. Uh, Phil Meese, was, I think, was involved in most both of these trials. And in those trials, what they saw, uh, and SPIRIT P1 were patients who were, I believe, biologic naive, and the P2 study were patients who were TNF inhibitor experienced, but in the P1 study, they had an ACR20 of 58 uh, uh, versus 30% uh, in placebo, and in the P2 study, it was 53 versus 20% uh, for those on placebo. So these are new uh, additions to our arsenal. It's a welcome addition. Uh, I would encourage you to try uh, ixekizumab as well as secukinumab in the management of patients with psoriatic disease and cutaneous psoriasis, and you don't need to have cutaneous psoriasis to use the drug. Uh, the, the, there is a, a package insert out there that says how it should be used. Uh, it basically is for psoriatic arthritis, 280 milligram infusions done at week zero, followed by uh, 80 milligrams Q2 weeks up to week 12. And after that, uh, it is every four weeks at 80 milligrams as a subcutaneous injection. Uh, and, and the only thing you probably need to know about this is that, uh, well, you could also for patients who have active skin disease, you could use an even higher dose, and you should look up the doses for active skin disease, psoriasis, for when using um, TALTS. Uh, there are uh, the usual risk of infection and need for TB screening, and there is a very low risk of either exacerbation or new onset of colitis 
about a 0.1% risk of Crohn's disease, and about a 0.2% um, for uh, ulcerative colitis. So these are low risk events. You may not want to use the drug in patients who have a history of colitis. Uh, I don't think I would go any further than that. Uh, I think meaning like a, a family history or, or, or undiagnosed colitis, I still think I would use these drugs because again, these are pretty rare events all across the board. So that's a major addition, uh, again, from the FDA this week. Um, another important consideration was a review that appeared in Drug Safety about thromboembolic events in patients who were taking um, um, JAK inhibitors. As you know, uh, JAK inhibitors are uh, very prevalent. We have two on the market currently, um, topocitinib for use in rheumatoid arthritis, and then uh, for use in um, uh, myelofibrosis is the drug uh, ruxolitinib. And, uh, and so those are out there, and um, neither of them actually have uh, venous thromboembolic events as a risk factor in their product label. Uh, however, the new uh, new, the drug, the uh, new JAK inhibitor, JAK1 inhibitor being developed by Lilly called uh, baricitinib was uh, slated to be approved this year, but was put on hold when the FDA uh, issued a complete response letter citing a concern about the imbalance of venous uh, thromboembolic events in patients on baricitinib versus those on, um, plac on placebo. Uh, none versus a, a few cases. So the question is, you know, is this related to the JAK inhibitors? Well, uh, at the, uh, so this, this report that comes from Drug Safety is an analysis of the, the MedWatch system. This is spontaneous reporting of adverse events to the FDA. The, um, and, and, and what they showed was a bit eye-opening. So there's no denominator here. You don't know what the event rate here is. And these drugs have been out on the market for a few years, but the cumulative events for, as follows, pulmonary thrombosis, 18 for TOFA, Five for long acting, uh, three more for long acting TOFA, and nine for ruxolitinib. Pulmonary embolism, 36 for TOFA, five milligrams, and three more for the 11 milligram version. And for ruxolitinib, 55 case reports of pulmonary embolism. Portal vein thrombosis, only been reported thus far with ruxolitinib, not with tofacitinib. Deep vein thrombosis, 18 cases, not much for um, tofacitinib, um, but there were 40 for ruxolitinib. Uh, ruxolitinib, and there was three more, uh, one more for extended-release tofacitinib. And lastly, just thrombosis in general, 43 for tofacitinib, and 75 for ruxolitinib, five for extended-release tofacitinib. What I'm not telling you is a lot of these reports ended up with not only hospitalization, but even deaths. So we don't know the denominator. We don't know how, how what this really means in the grand scheme of things. We do know that this is something that's being looked at actively by the FDA, especially with regard to baricitinib, but maybe this data will lead to a class analysis, would be, which would be interesting. At the most recent ACR meeting, Mark Genovese had an interesting uh, abstract, number 511, that looked at the risk of baricitinib, and he showed that in their drug development experience, uh, it was about 12 cases per 1,000 patient years in the first six months of use, but long-term follow-up this fell to five or six cases per 1,000. Uh, Philip Meese looked at the risk of, of venous thromboembolism in uh, all patients taking tofacitinib, RA, psoriasis, psoriatic arthritis, and ulcerative colitis, and most of the cases were zero, but there were a few events in both the 5 milligram and 10 milligram tofacitinib, um, but not as much as that's seen with methotrexate alone. Um, again, the question is, is it the drug or is it the disease? All studies that have looked at autoimmune disease, cancer diseases, or uh, rexolitinib, 
is being tested in patients with myeloid fibrosis, there's a higher rate of venous thromboembolic events. The rate that's been quoted in our recent report from uh, Room Now was, I believe, about five per 1,000 patient years. So it'll be interesting when we th this this is uh, further analyzed by the companies and by the FDA whether uh, there's going to be a risk between the JAK inhibition and the uh, of venous thromboembolic event. Uh, and lastly, a report as to why TNF inhibitors may work in some auto-inflammatory patients. Uh, as you know, auto-inflammatory diseases are, are often driven by missense mutations involving the NLRP3 uh, inflammasome. Um, that leads to um, the generation of, um, of caspase, which leads to more uh, IL-1 production and IL-18 production. But the problem is that not all auto-inflammatory diseases, especially the cryopyrin-associated periodic syndrome or CAPS um, disorders, uh, respond completely to IL-1 inhibition. In fact, there are case reports where they may respond better to TNF inhibition. And a number of, of, of investigators, in, uh, including Rafael Goldbach-Mansky from the NIH and Hal Hoffman from UCSD, got together and took advantage of um, knockouts that could look at different kinds of knockouts for the inflammasome. And, and bottom line is they found that, uh, that TNF appears to be an important transcriptional regulator of the NLRP3 inflammasome. And in those cases that don't respond to IL-1 inhibition, this makes sense that maybe uh, a trial of, instead of IL-1 inhibition, a TNF inhibitor may be the right way to go. So I think this sort of is nice sort of murine model data. Um, they showed in their murine models when you use etanercept, you got better, better outcomes in the murine knockouts um, that would otherwise explain, uh, express a pretty clear auto-inflammatory disease. So I think this is a nice scientific advance um, that may tell the clinician how to better manage disorders like CAPS uh, and other auto-inflammatory conditions. That's it for this, uh, this week at Room Now. Uh, go to the website. You can find uh, these citations and more about them uh, to read on further. Uh, be sure to uh, subscribe to our podcast if you don't already, and be sure to give us a good rating there. Uh, we'll see you next week. Have a good weekend.